0: My friends, welcome to Rainbow Parenting, a queer and gender affirming parenting podcast for anyone with littles in their lives. I am your host, Lynn's Amer. Today I am talking to a really awesome guest, someone who I've been watching in the space for uh, a while, (laughs) who hosts one of my all-time favorite podcasts, Tuck Woodstock of Gender Reveal. If you don't know Gender Reveal, I really, really highly recommend you check it out. It's a podcast hosted by a trans person talking to lots and lots of trans people from lots of different perspectives and uh, industries and spaces and identities. And uh, it's one of my favorite podcasts to listen to. And I was so, so happy to get Tuck on the show to talk about the New York Times. Dun, 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 dun. So the New York Times has uh, been wrong about trans kids recently. And this is something that's been talked about quite a bit all over the internet right now. So I got Tuck in the hot seat to talk about why the New York Times is uh, not being very nice to trans kids. Just recently on Gender Reveal, Tuck had on a guest on their episode on December 5th. Fifth, who is a trans New York Times journalist who talks about this exact topic. There was an article in Teen Vogue that has been debunking some of these anti-trans articles coming from the New York Times. Tuck and I talk about it on kind of a macro scale. There are also podcasts from uh, Jules Gil-Peterson is on the Slate Outward podcast and really debunks the most recent article about puberty blockers. Uh, so we're really going to get deep into this with Tuck and there are lots of other resources that you can look to for trans perspectives on why the New York Times is uh, not treating trans kids very well. So we're going to talk about that with Tuck before we get into that conversation real quick we are turning Teddy's book club into a video series for patrons. So we're going to do the first one this month, and we're going to be doing them all throughout 2023. I'm very excited about this. You can access those videos whenever you want with me and Teddy, and we're going to be reading books together every month. So check that out on the Patreon. The Patreon is how we make stuff happen. We have over 200 listeners on each of our episodes. And that keeps growing and growing by the day we're building a community here. And if every person who was listening to this podcast donated to our Patreon, which is $5 a month or $50 a year, we would be getting $1,000 a month, which would make our work sustainable and would help me pay the bills and pay our small staff of all trans and non-binary people, including me. And uh, it would be really nice to have a stable source of income like that, that we could really nurture and grow and build community internally, because that's what so much of this work is about. So please, please, please join our Patreon, come check out our new Teddy's Book Club series, and read along with us. Also, coming out this month, I was on the wonderful podcast, If These Ovaries Could Talk. I chat about queer kid stuff and my work. And I also chat a little bit about wanting to become a parent. So if you're interested in that and uh, my relationship to parenthood and how (laughs) we are starting to go about that journey, you can check uh, out my new episode of If Ovaries Could Talk, which should be coming out very soon. All right, that's enough of me talking. Let's get to my chat with Tuck. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Rainbow Parenting. I am super stoked about today's guest, Tuck Woodstock, of the uh, one of my favorite podcasts, Gender Reveal, um, that uh, you should all listen to after you head off of this podcast, if you haven't already. Um, But... This is Tuck. Hi, Tuck. Welcome to Rebo Parenting.
1: Hi. Thanks so much for having me. It's the crossover event of the century. I'm truly, excited. Truly, truly.
0: Um, okay. So let's just jump in, get started. Can you let us know your pronouns and how you identify?
1: Sure. I identify as a problem, and <laughs> uh, my pronouns are he, they. I a, identify as a professional transsexual. Uh, I make a podcast called Gender Reveal, which is uh, about. By and for trans people. And then I also do consulting work with uh, cis or straight people, mostly, although not entirely, uh, about telling stories about trans people in the best possible way. And that is almost the entirety of my work. So really all of my work is about uh, being queer and trans professionally, which I do love. It's such a weird... Thing where when people ask me what my job is, like, I'm still surprised. Like, I'm like, oh, podcasting and consulting are, like, not real jobs, especially when it's, like, about trans people. So <laughs> it's very strange that that is my job. But for some reason, it is.
0: I mean, you're talking to a trans children's performer.
1: <laughs> that is, so. yeah, somehow actually wilder.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know what to call myself. Sometimes I'm like, I'm a professional gay. I'm a professional trans. Also, mm-hmm. like, I work with kids. Who really knows what I do? just kind of anything that comes at me and people want me to do (laughs) and like I'm good with young people and like I play ukulele that's uh (laughs) I feel like those are my job descriptors um but also more importantly in this conversation in particular you're a journalist and like that's how I found you initially um through your beautiful twitter reporting on Mm -hmm. the 2020 protests in Portland Oregon um uh of the uprising around the George Floyd murder and Mm -hmm. um, have been following you ever since and have been really enjoying the journey of your work and uh, thought you would be a perfect person to talk about the New York
1: Times scary
0: music.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It is. It's so funny because I I have been a journalist for more than a decade now. I worked at a magazine for many years or series of magazines for many years And when I was working at these magazines in Portland, people would literally ask me, like, what is your career aspiration? And I was like, I don't know. I'm like doing pretty good. I'm having a good time. And Mm -hmm. they would say, do you want to work for The New York Times one day? Like that was Mm -hmm. like the aspirational journalist job. And I was like, "Mm, no, that's not really like the type of work that I do. Uh, But it's so funny now because it just aged so poorly to ask me if I would want to work for the New York Times. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm like, no, actually, my job is talking about how the New York Times is doing this wrong. Like, a lot of my job is critiquing the New York Times. Mm -hmm. Uh, They would not want me and I would not want them. But, you know, in an alternate universe where they didn't like triple down on being transphobic. Yeah, sure. Would be great. Why not?
0: Yeah, and I, I I'm so interested in this because I have an interesting relationship with like journalists and journalism as someone who like gets covered sometimes and can yeah. uh, attribute a lot of my success to a lot of the coverage that I've gotten, both good and bad. And my mm. wife's also a journalist, um, so mm. <laughs> I am very deeply embedded in journalist community, and we have a lot of friends who are journalists. So um, I'm a big I'm a big journalist uh, friend of journalists and. <laughs> that y'all do. Um, so when this started coming up, I, I really wanted to talk to someone who could look at it on kind of a macro level. I, for listeners, we're not going to go like too, too in depth. First of all, we'll provide context for what we're talking about It in- just a second. But um, we're not going to get like too, too in depth on like the micro of each of these articles that we're talking about to like fully dissect things. Um, If you're interested in that, there are some resources that have done that. I'm thinking in particular of Jules Gil Peterson on Slate's Outward podcast, who critiqued the most recent um, New York Times article that we'll talk about in a bit uh, around puberty blockers. Um, She does Mm -hmm. a beautiful job with that. Um, But we're going to look a little bit more at the macro. So Tuck, can you just give us a little like introduction of the topic like why are we talking about this
1: well I think there's the reason that you brought me on which is that the New York Times has become obsessed with both citing the topic of should trans kids exist mm. but before we get into that too much which I think is like the bulk and the actual reason that we're here yeah I also just want to shout out uh, shout out parentheses, derogatory, uh, <laughs> the New York Times insistence on othering trans people mm. and the fact that they're uh, like standards desk, which is the desk that decides sort of how people say things, like what the what the style guide is, mm-hmm. uh, what people are and are not allowed to say. They're really insistent on keeping the language used around trans people as transphobic as possible. Great. Uh, so something that I talk a lot about when I'm doing trainings Uh, for journalists is to stop talking about trans people like aliens Mm -hmm. and uh, something that people will do a lot, not just in journalism, is they'll add explainers or identifies as or little qualifications for trans Mm -hmm. people that they wouldn't do for cis people. So I'm sure you've talked about this on the show before, but if we talked about Joe Biden in the press, uh, I wouldn't say like Joe Biden who identifies as a man and uses he, him, his pronouns Mm -hmm. announced that he's breaking the railroad strike or whatever. Um, I would just be like Joe Biden. He broke the railroad strike. Uh, but when we talk about trans people in the media, uh, sometimes and often actually, and especially, especially, especially in the New York Times, you'll see things like, okay, here's one from the New York Times. The play is Josephine's first on a major London stage, but that was not the only reason that the playwright, comma, who identifies as transgender, queer, and non-binary and uses the pronoun they, comma, was anxious. Like, that's just, it's bad writing.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's clunky. It's so clunky. It's
1: clunky. It's such a weird way to convey that information. It's very, like, tell, don't show. Like, Mm -hmm. you can incorporate that information into the article without just putting it into the first or second or third sentence. But the reason that they do that at the New York Times is because their style guide explicitly says to do that. And I actually have a copy of Mm -hmm. the New York Times style guide. And so it actually tells people that every time they use they them as a pronoun, for example, they have to explain the quote, non-traditional usage. So they actually Mm. have to do that weird um, aside. And then in addition to that, um, it has in their style guide still to this day, uh, many readers remain unfamiliar with other terms of gender identity, including cisgender and non-binary. When such terms are necessary, include a brief explanation. Uh, they also um, describe singular they as a variant, which is really funny to me. Um, and then at the bottom That's of this, wrong. it says, "Yeah." At <laughs> the bottom, it says, um, "In many cases, pronouns and courtesy titles can be gracefully avoided altogether. If not." deftly explain the non-traditional usage, take particular care to avoid confusion if using they for an individual. And so it leads to trans people, again, being treated by aliens because they're saying that we should either gracefully avoid us Mm -hmm. or deftly explain our non-traditional existence. Um, And both of those things make us seem like aliens. So every time they write about us, they're doing actually what's against best practices. And increasingly, if you look at publications that aren't the New York Times, they're dropping those requirements. and They're just writing Mm -hmm. about trans people like people because it's 2022. Uh, But the New York Times really, uh, even when you have like a queer writer who's trying to say something like, oh, this queer bar got hate crimed. The standards desk will say, you have to say the LGBTQ bar got hate crimed. (laughs) It's just like, that's not, it's not, just stop, just stop. Um, I just want to say that because I think it's really important that when we talk about transphobia, we're not just talking about like, really overt acts of transphobia but we're also just saying if every time you talk about trans people you talk of us like we're weirdo freaks Mm -hmm. um, it's going to give the impression that we are weirdo freaks Uh, and if you talk about us like we're normal and you're talking about us the same way that you talk to everyone else then that subtly gives your readers the impression oh it turns out that I can just read an article about trans people without having to like stop and relearn gender and that's actually a really important thing to do to sort of normalize the concept of trans people but the New York Mm -hmm. Times does not want to normalize the concept of trans people.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I think what you're speaking to is like how the transphobia, particularly of the New York Times, is a systemic problem throughout the Mm -hmm. entire paper and every single section and not just each of these specific articles that's coming out and like, you know, leaving a particular impression about top surgery or puberty blockers. Like this is about the language and that they meaningfully and, like, purposefully choose how to, like, contextualize transness as a masthead and not just with individual bylines. And, right. Uh, yeah.
1: Well, yes, exactly, because, I mean, I will criticize Emily Bazelon and Pamela Paul and these people that have written these especially egregious articles, but mm-hmm. I do want to say that not everyone is doing this, and so I do want to emphasize they have queer reporters there, and they even have trans reporters there, and the trans reporters tend to quit, And the Mm. reason trans reporters tend to quit is because they're trying to write about trans people in a normal way. Whatever Mm -hmm. their beat is, they're trying to seamlessly incorporate trans people. And then they're having fights with their editors and the standards desk. And the standards desk are saying, no, you absolutely have to do this weird transphobic thing. And so it actually creates a hostile workplace for trans journalists because Mm. they are not allowed to write about their own communities in a way that doesn't harm their own communities. And so it's not to say that every New York Times writer is transphobic. It's saying that, like we're saying, like every New York Times writer is forced into this pipeline of transphobia. And if you do happen to catch an article uh, by a New York Times reporter that does not do these weird uh, dancing around trans issues, which does happen, it's because they snuck it past. (laughs) You know, it was like despite Mm. the standards of the New York Times rather than because of them. And these conversations are had between trans and queer reporters at the New York Times and the Standards Desk and senior editors um, all the time. So we also can't say like, oh, it's because the New York Times doesn't know better. The New York Times has been told over and over and over again, and they're actively choosing not to listen. And I think that's really important too, because when I first got into this, it was more of a, oh, nobody knew what to do. And we can see Mm -hmm. over the past like four or five years, there's this bifurcation, where instead of like, oh, no outlets know how to cover trans people, some outlets actually cover trans people really well now. And that's so mm. cool to see. And the ones that aren't doing that are doing that because they intentionally are choosing not to. Do you want to shout out just like a couple of good ones that you like? I mean, it it also varies, right? Because trans can come totally. out of anywhere. Um, Time Magazine has done great work, which is almost just making up for the work that they did in the past. But um, mm-hmm. Time Magazine has done great work. The Washington Post sometimes does great work and sometimes not. Mm -hmm. Um, If you're talking about smaller publications, the 19th has a lot of trans writers and is doing really, really good work. But in general, even just like, NPR and OPB member stations, are, sorry, OPB is my member station from Portland, <laughs> NPR member stations such as OPB, um, it's really hit and miss. It just depends who's mm. in your editorial team, right? So like, I want to say Oregon Public Broadcasting in Portland like, does really good work generally. And that is because they have a few key people that are making sure they do really good work. But other NPR member stations uh, can be doing totally different work. So like uh, Stell Klein was an NPR affiliate host who got literally fired for being transgender like a year or two ago i can't remember how time works um so it's 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 hard to say like this place always does good work yeah um but there are definitely places where their internal style guide is telling them to be normal and chill and good Mm -hmm. (laughs) instead of their internal style guide is telling them to please be as transphobic as possible which for some reason uh is seems to be the new york times uh sort of like we're gonna die on this hill
0: Yeah, and I appreciate you bringing up, uh, like, names like NPR and Time and Washington Post because I think, like, there's a big difference between talking about the 19th and, like, something like Autostraddle that's, like, queer Mm -hmm. and trans, like, run and Mm -hmm. owned versus, like, the New York Times and, like, these large mastheads that have incredible influence. And I want to just speak just quickly about like the New York Times itself as an entity and like why it's important to talk about the New York Times specifically and like its influence and why it like really sucks that like this is where this like, I don't know, quote unquote battle is happening around transness and journalism.
1: When you say I want to talk, do you mean I should talk? Yeah, yeah. You, you, you
0: speak, please.
1: <laughs> okay, great. Perfect. I'm here to like, listen. don't want to cut you off. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay, there's so many reasons mm-hmm. for this, but I would say the broadest one is just that the New York Times is considered this paper of record and this standard in journalism. And so you can see the influence in other publications and in other institutions, as well as on an individual level. So let's try to go through those very quickly. Mm -hmm. As far as other institutions are concerned, the best way that I have seen to influence the way that other publications are covering trans people or any topic is to show them a comparable publication and say, hey, these people are Mm. doing this. And so... Uh, It was harder when everyone was talking about trans people like they were weirdo freaks. Now that there are a lot of good articles about trans people, it is actually a lot easier to go into a newsroom and point and say, look, people are doing really good work about trans people and their publications you respect, like the ones we just listed. Yeah, precedent. Precedent, exactly. So, you know, I was working with This American Life on this story about a trans child And uh, I don't think I signed an NDA, no. And um, and they um, (laughs) they originally were basically doxing this kid. Like they had his first and last (sighs) name and a ton of identifying information. And I was able to say not only like, here's why I don't think you should do this, but like, here's all these places where it is in their uh, field guide, their style guide to not do that. So I can Mm. point to publications that you respect who would also not do that. And that proves that I'm not just like a weirdo who's like, oh, well, I don't think you should do this. I'm like, no, it's actually best practices to not do this. Mm -hmm. Um, When the New York Times insists on doing like overtly transphobic or even implicitly transphobic language, um, other places replicate that because they Mm -hmm. use the New York Times as their style bearer. So I actually have friends who went to, I believe it was Fordham University years ago, and they were trying to get their school paper to talk about trans people in a more... Uh, accepting way. And their whoever was at the top actually looked at the New York Times for reference and said, well, because the New York Times is doing this, we're going to do what the New York Times is doing. And so the trans people on the paper were forced into using this sort of weird transphobic language because their whatever teachers, mentors, bosses were taking cues from the New York Times. Um, but outside of just the journalistic influence, obviously, it influences the way that people think. And a lot yeah. of people really respect the New York Times. And so I hear from a lot of trans people who say, my parents are reading these stories about trans people in the New York Times. And that is their sort of like standard for reputable information. And so whatever they read in the New York Times, if they read a New York Times article that says like too many kids are trans or kids shouldn't be getting top surgery or like kids shouldn't be allowed to transition or no one can say women anymore. They're going to take that really seriously because they believe in the New York Times and publications like the New York Times. And this is really, really important. Like if there's something I could underline, I think Mm -hmm. it would be this. The New York Times is really good at writing stories where if you don't know the subject matter already, it seems like really good reporting. Mm -hmm. And the only way to know that it's actually egregiously wrong is to know more about that topic than the reporter did. So when I'm reading that story and when my colleagues are reading that story, we're saying, oh, they misrepresented this information. This source is not a reliable source. They're giving the impression that like this data means this but really it means this. They're framing this in a disingenuous way. They're leaving out these really key sources. But if you're just a random person reading that story, of course you wouldn't know any of that thing. And that's the insidio- insidious thing about this type of thing is that if you go in with the amount of information that like an average listener of this podcast might have, um you would just be like, "Oh, okay, great. Thank you, The New York Times." Yeah. <laughs> because, You it's not your job to know everything already, Mm -hmm. Um, and that's what makes it really really harmful because it sounds credible. They're really good at sounding like they did their research, like sounding like they are being fair, um, sounding like they did both sides. Uh, And this this concept of both sides is like actively killing trans people, right? So not to ramble too long, but I will just say and then throw it back to you and you can follow up. (laughs) But um, I'll just say that um, after the Club Q murders a few weeks ago, uh, one of their opinion writers uh their opinion writer I don't remember her name and I don't care um <laughs> she wrote this essay that was like 80% how could anyone do this how could someone go and murder queer and trans people that's so messed up who would do this and then she added in her article of course there are legitimate arguments in the realm of LGBTQ whatever for example whether trans kids should be allowed to medically transition. <sighs> but this wasn't about that. So she put in her article about trans people getting murdered. By the way, I don't think trans kids should transition. But that said, why would anyone hate crime trans people? And it's like, babe, you're doing it. You're like contributing to this right now. Yeah. And so there's sort of both sides of them. Like I said, like it really gets trans people literally actually killed because if we can't write about trans people without saying, by the way, some of them shouldn't exist. You're literally saying some trans people shouldn't exist. People are going to say that. Take that really seriously.
0: Yeah, and I also think like the the thing that happens from that, and like from people like taking information from you know resources, the New York Times, like it makes people think that they are now experts on something and brings it to different spaces in different communities. Because like I, like what you said at the beginning of this, of like, you know, people asking you if you aspire to the, to write for the New York Times, like I, you know, for on my bucket list for a long time was like to get a profile in the, the New York Times. Totally. Because that is the paper that like my cis, straight, white, neolib dad, like, reads religiously every weekend. And I know that, like, oh, I have a trans kid. Ooh, this is an article about transness. This is something I should be interested in and should read so I can be more knowledgeable about this, when actually him reading that article that he thinks is relevant because of me actually is something that harms me. And I and I worry that that's something that happens for other parents of trans kids and influences how they treat the young people in their lives and the young people that they're parenting and using the New York Times as a as a place to start formulate opinions around
1: their trans kids right i mean we can even point to the fact that Individual writers at the New York Times, both opinion writers and sort of these like more traditional journalists have written these pieces about trans kids and we can talk more about them. Mm -hmm. And they're purporting again, right, that they're both sides in this issue and that they're just asking questions. And that, of course, they support trans people. It's just that some trans people go too far or whatever their argument is. Mm -hmm. And then those articles have actually been used in court more than once to argue against the rights of trans kids and trans adults and yeah. so there's a direct connection it is not obfuscated in any way there is a direct connection that these articles are being taken and used to argue against trans rights in court i just i just think they're not being subtle you know <laughs> like, yeah yeah it's absolutely. not subtle to do that um so yeah it it is hurting individual relationships with trans people and their families, it's also hurting trans people on a systemic level because we can see the ways that that impacts actual policy.
0: Yeah, because I like I imagine like, you know, a parent bringing their trans kid to school and another parent coming into like the room or like the administration or like a PTA meeting or whatever and holding this article from the New York Times and saying like you shouldn't be transitioning your kid. I don't I don't want my kid around this. I don't want this in my in like, my kid's school. Like I and I and I f- I can imagine that it would be so hard for the parent of that trans kid to even know how to combat a New York Times article in a really intense situation like that that's questioning your child's like understanding of self and how you're parenting.
1: And the truth is like even if they know how to combat that, it doesn't matter because anytime one of these articles come out and there have been many, 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 my first desire, not even impulse, my first desire is to go through and refute it line by line. Mm -hmm. And the thing is that doesn't do anything because the people who would listen to me already believe what we're saying. The people who don't want to listen to me are never going to take my analysis or even like Jules Gil-Peterson's analysis, Chase Strangio's analysis. Mm -hmm. um, Even if we're experts in our fields, even if we know more than the people who wrote the articles, which generally at least one of the people I mentioned does, it's normally not me, but you know, someone knows more. Even if we were interviewed for the article... They're never going to take it seriously compared to a thing that a random cis people wrote in The New York Times. And the reason that I say a random cis person is because there are cis, trans, queer, straight. There are people who have these topics as their beat. And when you see these kind of harmful articles, more often than not, They are written by someone who has no prior experience reporting on trans issues. They just picked up the topic and they were like, "Hmm, yeah, I can figure this out. They're not going to people whose entire life has been covering this. And the thing about if you're not a journalist, that's important to know is that generally uh, reporters have specific beats and you do that because you can't know everything. So you specialize in a specific topic. So if I'm writing about um, trans topics, I probably wouldn't even write about trans topics broadly. Let's think about Frankie de la Creta. Frankie de la Mm Creta covers just gender in sports specifically. And because they're really good at that, They know um, a lot of the issues facing trans athletes, and they can point to specific moments in history. They have a large range of references and experts that they can talk to. They have a large range of athletes that they can talk to. They've been watching this develop for years, their trusted name. They're going to do a good job on that piece. Now, the New York Times could just send a random reporter who doesn't know any trans people or the history of trans people um, to cover trans issues in sports And they wouldn't have this background information. They wouldn't have the knowledge of who to talk to or what the historical context is or the social context is. And yet that article would reach more people Mm. uh, because it's the New York Times and then it would be seen as more credible than anything that Frankie would write. And so it's just really hard because we don't actually value expertise. We just value what's perceived as expertise, which is Mm. what is the paper? (laughs) What is the name of the paper you're writing in? Yeah. And if the paper you're writing in is systemically discriminating against the experts in the field that you're talking about, <laughs> then like you're never gonna get good quality information. What incentive do trans people have to talk to the New York Times at this point? You were talking about, oh, I I had in the past, I had aspired to maybe get a feature in the New York Times. Um, I was mm, I don't know if featured is the right word. I was included in a New York Times article a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And I was included by a friend of the family who herself is a, is a lesbian. And so I was like, okay, like dyke bonding, like this will be okay. This is yeah. a safe space for me. Um, two things happened. One is that she misgendered me throughout the piece despite me like explicitly telling her yeah. what to say. The other thing is she just lied to make me sound more aggressive and unreasonable. And she actually fact-checked it with me. So she said, hey, this is what it's going to look like. What do you think? Which is like a weird thing that journalists aren't supposed to do. And I was like, okay, one, you misgender me like a hundred times. But two, I didn't say this and this isn't true. And instead of changing the thing, which was basically like tuck bullies people on the internet when they have gender reveals, I was like, I don't do that. That's not a thing that I do. And she's like, hmm, well, I'm going to leave. <laughs> so, you know, I was in the New York Times, but it's, it's not something that's real. It's not true. Mm-hmm. The thing that was in the New York Times is not the truth of my life. It's something that was created by a cis person to make a trans person sound more aggressive and unreasonable. Yeah, uh, And so it just becomes really dangerous for trans people to talk to, again, the paper of record. And that means that the paper of record doesn't have trans voices because it's dangerous for us to talk to them. And then they're just talking about us instead of to us. So it's really, really hard. To figure out a solution to that,
0: yeah, I'm, and I, I promise we're going to get to the actual articles. But before we, <laughs> before we get there, I, there's something for me that's coming up here around like why do journalistic ethics just get thrown out the window when it comes to trans people?
1: Yeah, I would love to know because I ask myself that all the time, and I would literally just say uh, to myself and to my friends like, what's the point of being a journalist if your thing is to uphold the status quo? And my friend Kay Rambo, who is a trans journalist, who's currently the editor-in-chief at Street Roots in Portland, uh, which is an incredible publication that does really good work. Um, Kay Rambo actually solved this, this question to me in an interview with a different journalist. And what they said is that there are two types of journalists broadly, not to bifurcate anything, but there's two types of journalists. And one of them is there to speak truth to power and to like uplift marginalized voices. And the other one is to actually see greater proximity to power and mm. ingratiate themselves to power so that they also become powerful. So when you think about cop reporters, uh, which Kate was at one point, um, you can be a reporter like Kay, where you're like, hey, the cops are wrong and lie. <laughs> or you can be like the other cop reporter in Portland who was like, Here is a cop press release. We love the cops. Here's all of these good things that the cops do. And you know who has more money and power? It's the person who loves the cops. Like she has much more power now than Kay does because she's ingratiating herself to power. And so I think when it comes down to a question between like ethics and transphobia, people are going to choose transphobia because you actually can get a lot more powerful by doing transphobia than you can ever be powerful by standing up for trans people. Like that hasn't really like gotten anyone any additional power in the history of, you know, Western civilization. <laughs> like being like, I think trans people are people who deserve rights has never like gotten anyone anywhere in terms of systemic power. Man, that would be nice. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't it be so fun and cool? But that's the thing about the New York Times is the reason that it's not going to change is that they have no incentive to change because it doesn't mm. challenge their power as an institution. When trans people go, hey, could you maybe um treat us like human beings and stop telling people to do genocide against us? They're like, mm, we have no incentive to do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: Brilliant.org is the best way to learn STEM subjects through online interactive lessons. You can learn math and science, even computer science. Brilliant has thousands of lessons with new ones added every month. Brilliant has everything from pre-algebra to calculus to algorithm fundamentals and even an introductory lesson to neural networks. Wow. (laughs) Brilliant's intuitive, interactive lessons are perfect for lifelong learners, especially anyone who wants to maybe brush up on long-lost skills and stay sharp to help young folks in your lives with their homework. It's also great for folks who love to follow their curiosity and explore cool ideas and even find new hobbies. Everyone in the family can find something awesome to learn on Brilliant. To get started for free, visit brilliant.org slash rainbowparenting. That's brilliant. The Peepkins is a new kids and family podcast arriving just in time for those long holiday road trips. With stories full of adventure, lots of laughs, and lessons galore, this show is engaging, delightful, and stars the talented Anna Ferris, Malik Pincioli, and Diedrich Bader. Join quirky Commander Hatch along with her fearful but determined best friend Noah as they go on adventures and lift the town's spirits all while trying to melt the icy heart of the menacing villain Baron Von Torius. So, whether you're looking to avoid that age-old question, are we there yet, on your long road trip, or simply listening together at home, activate your imaginations and enjoy a perfect audio experience for the whole family. Follow and listen to the peepkins where you're listening right now. You know, I was uh, and starting to get into some of the articles. I I was like s- this most recent one that came out around Puberty Blockers Mm -hmm. a week or two ago, I was so disappointed to see what's her name? Meg Toohey's byline on it, who um, famously was part of the expose uh, on Harvey Weinstein. Um, Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know, cis people can assist. But like, I don't know, I knew her byline. And I was like, you were part of this huge, you know, catalyst for, you know, the entire, you know, Me Too movement. And there's a lot that went into that. But It made me lose, like, a lot of respect for a journalist that I thought, like, was someone who had, like, done a good thing and who was in journalism to do good things. And I don't know, can you just speak to that a little bit?
1: I mean, I don't want to speak for this specific person, but I think that something we see in general is that trans people really understand the connection between quote unquote women's issues and quote unquote trans issues because mm. they're the same issue, which is an issue of bodily autonomy and like vulnerability and power.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and so trans people are, you know, 99.9% of the time going to show up for you know, quote unquote women's issues, again, that have to do with like abortion or Mm -hmm. sexual assault or anything else that has to do with like our rights to be in control of our own bodies. But uh, it doesn't always go the other way. And a lot of times uh, cis women specifically are going to see trans people as also the enemy. And that is because they are fed messages from places such as the New York Times um, that trans people are encroaching in their rights the same way that the patriarchy is encroaching in their rights. So they're saying, and again, this is transphobic, this isn't something that I believe, but they're saying something like, oh, men pretending to be women are invading women's spaces, or oh, women. We can't even say women anymore. We have to say pregnant people. And if you hear those messages enough, you're going to start to believe them and you're going to start to see trans people as somehow part of patriarchy instead mm. of being hurt by patriarchy. Uh, and so I think that is something that happens a lot. Uh, to get into a specific article, we can actually think about Pamela Paul's op-ed in the New York Times that said, I mean, she's done many and they're all terrible, but she has said, you know, this, you can't say women anymore article. Um, that basically pits women against trans people by saying that trans people are insisting on gender-neutral language. And that's taking away sort of the essence of women's rights, because now we can't say women deserve abortions. We have to say people deserve abortions. And that's erasing womanhood, right? Uh, So I think that's where some of that instinct comes from. And what's so funny is, like, you can say women. And in fact, all of the people who are saying you can't say women anymore are saying women by saying you can't say women anymore. And the only thing that's happening is they're becoming more powerful. Like I said, being transphobic actually gets you power in the system that we have right now. So writing an article where you say we can't say women anymore gets Pamela Paul, you know, like more like power and prestige while harming trans people. But it doesn't actually do anything for women who aren't Pamela Paul. <laughs> you know? yeah. like she's the only woman benefiting from this article. Uh, and it's certainly not helping trans women, right? So it's it's a very interesting grift to see individual women throw so many other people under the bus to be like, oh, but people will like me if I pretend that the source of our problem is trans people and not people in power.
0: Yeah. And I feel like a good deal of the articles we're going to talk about are written by straight, cis women, um, yeah. as, as, as far as, as as I can tell. Um, yeah. the, the first two that kind of come to mind are the mo- two most recent ones, and I'm sure you have a better idea of kind of like what the catalog uh, of the New York Times articles that specifically target mm-hmm. trans kids especially, um, but the two that come up for me are most recent that are the one about um, puberty blockers that came out like mm-hmm. a week or two ago, and then the one about minors getting top surgery. And I'm, first of all, like if you can fill out some like other stuff that's been happening. And I'm just I'm just really curious about why why they're looking at trans kids so specifically. And a lot of it's around the medicalization of like transition of trans kids. I'm interested in like why that and like why so many different angles on it.
1: Yeah. So I will say that the puberty blockers article is the first one where I managed to actually just never read it Mm -hmm. the other ones I read because I feel like it is part of my job to know what to say and because I love to do self-harm by reading you know New York Times articles Mm -hmm. I actually didn't read that one I did talk to friends who read it but Mm -hmm. I I can't like quote specific passages because I just decided to not (laughs) engage Um, and that's a that's a fair point too of like
0: okay let's not engage
1: (laughs) yeah totally um and but i will say in general when you're saying why this i think one the overton window is shifting a little bit on transness and so it's slightly less in vogue to say that trans people shouldn't exist Mm. um so they're looking for a more vulnerable target and to that end if you say that something is hurting the children throughout time throughout history it is very easy to galvanize people for your cause if you say it is hurting the children. Yeah. Uh, and so that's easy to rally around. It's also just children are so vulnerable, right? Yeah. Even if children are trying to advocate for themselves, uh, we don't listen to children in this particular society. Uh, and I actually like a lot of what Jules Peterson had to say on our episode of Gender Reveal, where we talk about the way that Both the left and the right tends to not really consider the rights of children when talking about what should happen to trans kids, uh, because even the left tends to do a sort of protectionist model. Oh yeah,
0: absolutely and just quickly like that is one of my favorite episodes of Gender Reveal. So like if you're going to listen to anything after this episode, listen to the Slate episode from Jules on uh, outward about specifically about the trans puberty blockers article mm-hmm. and then go listen to the episode of Gender Reveal because it's fantastic. And uh yeah, I mean we talk a lot on this podcast about the intersection of transness and childism, the discrimination mm-hmm. against children and um how young trans and queer kids are particularly vulnerable and are targets right now. Um, And it's interesting that the New York Times has very particularly uh, kind of caught on to this um, targeting. I don't know how else to say it.
1: Yeah, I think it's just the easiest way to do transphobia right now. Mm. Uh, Like I, I joke sometimes that it's too bad that I'm so old that the New York Times and the TERFs and whatnot don't care that I'm a transsexual because it would be funny to sort of like make direct eye contact with them and be like, I'm your worst fears, but they don't care about me. Like they don't care if people in their thirties are transsexuals anymore. We're a lost cause to them, but they do really care um, that there aren't future generations of trans people,
0: yeah, and i I will just interrupt you right there because yeah. I do think that they do care about trans adults who are around kids,
1: Sure, sure, sure. yes, yes. They just don't care if we transition, I guess is what I'm saying. yeah, yeah like totally. they they want us to not exist, but they're not trying to prevent trans. hmm, They're not trying to prevent adults from being trans. They just want trans adults to go far, 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 far away. Mm -hmm. Whereas trans kids, they're actually trying to stop from becoming trans. So they're like, okay, these trans adults are a lost cause. We just don't want them near us. These trans kids, we can like save from transsexuality. And it's just so easy to fear monger if you don't know anything about, you know, the way that transsexuality works for kids it's very easy to fearmonger, right so we see mm-hmm. all of these politicians and all of these regular you know non-politician civilians as well where they're like how could you support the genital mutilation of children and it's like well nobody's doing that but it's really easy if your argument is i don't want children to have genital mutilation like that implies that your opponent wants children to have genital mutilation so it's really easy to feel like you're correct in that argument right like it's a really easy win it's the same way that like Calling queer and trans people groomers works because if you're arguing against that, then like they're like, well, you're implying that pedophilia is okay, or you're implying that grooming is okay, and thus we win. It's really easy to convince yourself that you're right when those are sort of the stakes that you've like created for yourself. And so, yeah, I think it's just it's just that people, including these reporters at The New York Times, are deeply transphobic. Um, they maybe don't see that part of themselves. And so instead of just like naming, oh, I don't want there to be trans people, they're creating these scenarios in which they can like logic themselves to be like, well, who, who would support who would support transsexual children? I'm just protecting the children. I'm just waiting for them to be adults. Um, and it's really easy to sort of create that logic, but that doesn't mean that it's correct. (laughs) Mm. It just means that it's convenient. It has been very, very interesting because as you're saying, it is mostly straight, cis, white women who are writing these articles. And I am just really interested in, uh, sort of who these women are outside of this because some of them have been really respected outside of these particular articles and it does feel like a big letdown. Yeah. Um, and then some of them are Like Pamela Paul is an opinion, like an op-ed columnist who is married to Brett Stevens. So we're like, okay, I understand why you're writing these absolutely unhinged. Like she wrote something recently about how kids these days were saying that we should use the word queer instead of gay and how that was a hate oh, crime actually. Oh, and I remember it's like, that. babe, you're straight. Stay in your own life. <laughs> Get out, out of here. Get, Get out, out of out our here. baseball. <laughs> exactly. Um, but there there does seem to be this impulse where this specific set of people have been inserting themselves into this issue. And I don't I don't know exactly what it is. Like I have a lot of theories. I think a lot of these people are sort of used to being the most marginalized person in the room. And then when mm. they aren't, they can't handle it. Um, I think some of these people are genuinely misled by, you know, their peers in media and like think this is actually a big issue. But, you know, if you think of, so the Emily Bazelon piece was a while back. And the Emily mm-hmm. Bazelon piece was about, I don't know how to explain this about getting in the weeds. It is about the new standards of care for trans kids and adults. But this article focused on kids. So basically the mm-hmm. new international standards of care for trans kids.
0: Right. That was talking about the American Academy of Pediatrics, right?
1: Probably. I talked about WPATH and I'm okay. sure that the AP was in there too. Mm-hmm. But it was focused on WPATH which is the uh, the World Professional Association for Transgender Health. Mm. That's the group that like decides this this international standards of care. And so they wrote this big article about how these standards were being updated. And that are, that author, Emily Bazelon, did this really strange thing where she interviewed trans experts who are historians on WPATH and historians on transgender care and the transgender care for children. So we're talking about Jules Gil-Peterson, Beans Veloci, other people like that. And then she didn't include any of that information in the article, which was very, very long. It's a long article. She didn't include that information. But then when the article came out and people said, this is a transphobic article, Mm -hmm. she did a Twitter thread that said, thank you to these people who talked to me. And she linked to Jules and other trans people's work, thus implying that those interviews were incorporated and influenced the article, but they didn't. In fact, some of the information from that article directly contradicted what was in the article. So like Jules said, hey, this is the history. It dates back this many decades. Mm -hmm. And then Emily Bazelon wrote like, this is a new thing for new kids, you know? And like, like, no, you were told by Jules, a person you admit to talking to that that's not true. And so, uh, yeah, I think like in sort of the Pamela Paul opinion column, we can just be like, this person has wild takes and she doesn't know anything but they're giving her free range to not know anything mm-hmm. but when we're talking about a really in-depth reported article where they talk to trans people who are historians and like experts on this topic and mm-hmm. then ignore them i actually don't really have an explanation for like one why that's allowed and two why that's happening other yeah. than people's transphobia is so strong that it's overriding um their ability to do objective journalism
0: yeah Oh my gosh. (laughs) Big deep breath. Because, like, this is a lot and it's hard Mm -hmm. and heavy. And it, like, it sucks to be at the whim of an institution that has so much influence and yet just continues to do incredible harm. And, Mm -hmm. like, it doesn't feel like, there's a lot we can do about it, except, like, edu- like have conversations like this publicly and, like, educate people on, like, why this institution sucks um and, like, why the practices of The New York Times are terrible when it comes to this in particular. And I'm just kind of wondering, like, what are you looking for as a way forward? Like, I mean, like, with The New York Times, but, like, also with, like, transness and journalism and, like, that relationship moving forward, because – I mean, Club Q just happened. Like, Drag Story Hour performances are becoming Mm -hmm. the new abortion clinic. Like, I'm personally very scared of potentially going to tour and do children's performances in June, especially around my book and, like, the public platform of it all. Like, it's a really, really scary time right now to be working with and supporting and uplifting trans kids. And that is wild to me. And I don't know where this question is going necessarily, but like hopes and dreams for the future and like helping.
1: Right. God, I mean, first I just have to say, and this doesn't, this is maybe like alarming to your listeners, but I think this is how trans people tend to operate. Yeah. Is so Club Q happened and trans and queer people got murdered. Although weirdly straight cis people were also there, which I like, you know, I just have a question. This is a side note. Mm-hmm. Um, Some of the straight people who were there were there with their families and I have never in my life heard about straight people going to Queer bars with their families—is that a thing? I.
0: This is interesting. I was in Las Vegas recently, and I was doing a gig, and I went to a, the like big drag brunch, like like yeah. um, frog, whatever. Um, and I was sitting at a table with a uh, family all straight, grandma, mom, kid, and like they had never been to a drag show before. Like I think drag is just becoming a lot more mainstream than it has been in the past, and that means that a straight cis audience is going and it's become this like all ages thing, but also is like is, like, people sexualize it so much. So, like, I think people are confused about how to engage with drag, Mm -hmm. specifically as an art form, because it can be so sexualized, but it can also be all ages. So, I think, like, people just, like, don't get that that doesn't yeah. necessarily answer your question but like that's kind of how I've been thinking yeah
1: that actually makes so much sense I'm actually thinking of like adult cartoons where it's like okay yeah okay you know how some cartoons are for kids and some are for adults drag mm-hmm. is also like that. <laughs> <Well, laughs> like, and that's a great point too
0: because I, I'm very in like the animation world yeah and like animation is a medium not genre. It's an artistic form. It's not for kids. It's not for adults. It's a way of expressing a story. And Mm -hmm. that's the same with drag. Drag is a medium, and it can adapt to different contexts and different audiences. And I, I think that's actually a really, really great way to put it, because I think that people don't think about drag as a medium of artistic expression. They Mm -hmm. just think about like the kind of show and like a bar or a library that you would go to and they see those two spaces and like those two spaces do not exist in, cannot exist in the same medium and or in the same genre because I mean, that's true. (laughs) You can't have a bar at a library. (laughs) There's a reason for that. Um, But I think people are, have a hard time shifting the medium
1: between those spaces yeah uh so anyway that is that is actually so so interesting but i'm going to go back to what i was just (laughs) saying but also think about that still uh what i was going to say which was just like my dark little joke is like club q happened and trans and queer people got murdered uh but then like the next day there was like a bunch of there was a mass shooting at a walmart so i was like Mm. look you can get murdered going to the club, but you can also get murdered going to Walmart. So, like, mm. you may as well go to the club. <laughs> like, yeah. You may as well, oh you God. Know? But uh,
0: the gallows humor is necessary. Exactly. Sometimes. I'm like. Uh,
1: <laughs> anyway, all that, all that said, uh, we were talking about what what you can do, and I think well, just like the
0: future of trans journalism and the yeah. like kids and stuff. Yeah. Well, I was. I've been talking
1: to a few different like anarchists lately Dean Spade and Margaret Kiljoy who seem on completely different planes on paper but are actually talk about a lot of the same things mm. and one of the things that they both talk about a lot is like how anarchism is based in in people power and you know mm. mutual aid is an anarchist concept and so when we're thinking about what we have to like fight against institutions or even just to like make our lives more bearable when institutions are like seeking to harm us i think we can't always just be like, this will never be okay until we bring down this institution, although that is true. But we can think about like, how are we building the numbers of people and the community and the relationships in that community that we need to eventually bring down this institution. So when I'm thinking about like how to combat misinformation about the New York Times, I can't write an article or make a podcast that by itself is going to get audience of the new york times we already said this and if i Mm -hmm. did people wouldn't listen to me but what i can do is make information and make connections and then look at ways to spread that information in community so like i'm on your show right now you know like this is this is an outreach that i am doing hopefully the people who listen to this um they can take this podcast and other episodes that you've done and episodes that i've done and other work that jules has done for example Mm -hmm. And share that with their friends and say, "Hey, I really trust these sources, and I've learned a lot from them." And you know, when next time we're talking about the New York Times articles, here's some sources that I found, and not only share them, which is great, um, also give them like five dollars, like you know, like I have a Patreon. I'm sure you you have some way to give you money as well. Yeah. And we don't have New York Times money, right? Like we can only do this um, if we are are but freelancers. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like I am paying for healthcare out of pocket, right? Mm -hmm. So like. If you find sources that are useful to you, the best thing that you can do is tell other people about them. And the other best thing you can do is give them like $5. And I think that is is truly the thing that I have to look to is saying like, Mm -hmm. okay, on a widespread level, there's like so much ground that we need to cover. And I never feel worse than when I'm like looking at the quote tweets of something about trans people and see like hundreds of people that just hate trans people being like, how would you support this? You know, how would you support, again, like the mutilation of children? But on the other hand, I can look to the fact that this straight family went to a drag brunch, which actually rules. Like, that's so cool. Yeah. Or I can look to like the fact that all of these people are listening to your podcast. Like, that is really, really cool that there's an audience for this podcast that you make. Um, because that so. is a bunch of people. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a bunch of people who are saying that this is important to them. And like mm-hmm. that is really, really cool. Or any, you know, anytime I see, you know, someone share an episode of gender veal or mm-hmm. whatever, that's really valuable to me. And so I think, yeah, like I I'm just reiterating what I already said, but I think that like, the best way we can do anything is through numbers. And the only way that we can make um, the New York Times at all, the only way that we can make this stop is by making it like actually hard for them financially. Mm. And so that's like unsubscribing from the New York Times and saying this is because of transphobia. Yeah. And then getting everyone else to do that, but also just supporting Other publications, so that the New York Times is not um, the only source of information and is not like the most respected source of information, uh, and just doing that work slowly over time. And like, can we do it fast enough to avoid this weird fascism? Probably not. But do we got to try anyway? Yeah, we got to try anyway, baby. Yeah, (laughs) and like, (laughs) speaking as
0: someone who loves Wordle and like has done the mini, the mini crosswords, like, oh man, it is such a hard thing to break up the New York Times because they are just in so many different spaces and there's so much content. Like, I used to love reading the arts and culture section. And like, that's where I would like love hearing about new art and like theater and like movie reviews and all this stuff. Like they have so much that they cover that it is hard to cut the cord with them. And uh, uh, this is us encouraging you to just do it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I also have like, I was talking to my friend about this. this It's so funny. Is like, I have a lot easier time Mm, let me just give examples because I don't know how to phrase this. So like, I'm like, okay, I have Netflix, a company that is taking all of their money and giving it to transphobes. And I have Spotify, a company that's taking all of its money and giving it to transphobes. Um, But I don't use Amazon because I feel like that's hurting other groups of people. And like, I don't, I'm vegan because that's hurting other animals that are like, and other people like slaughterhouse workers Mm -hmm. that are not me. And so I think it's easier to be like, well, I can do a little transphobia as a treat, but I like can't do these things (laughs) that hurt other people. And so all that said is like, I think that if anyone deserves to still get... Well, Wordle's free. But like, I think if anyone deserves to like still do Wordle, it's trans people. And that cis people are the ones that actually have the burden of like, you actually can't compromise on these things. You actually cannot support these institutions Mm. that are harming trans people as cis people. That's like ethically not okay. We as a little treat, because there's much fewer of us and we're really having a hard time. We're allowed to use Spotify. It's okay.
0: (laughs) Yeah. No, I think that that's a really like... I don't know. I want to say, like, a healthy way to look at it and, like, not necessarily, I don't know if that's the right word, but I I think in a way of, like, giving yourself a little bit of grace. Um, yeah.
1: I think, like, I mean, I think that it it truly is, like, and that also isn't to say that trans people can do anything they want, but I think it's, like, thinking about allyship and the way that you're in solidarity with other groups of people is really important. Mm. Um, So I think, like, our first priority should be, like, taking steps to reduce our harm, With other groups of people because that's less natural to us. Like, I sort of intuitively know when and when I am not like contributing to transphobia, but I actually don't intuitively know when I am or am not contributing to like certain types of ableism that I'm not experienced in. So that's something that I like really need to focus on. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas, like, you know, transphobia, I'm like, okay, I get it. And sometimes I make choices that, or whatever. And it's fine because I I can like do cost benefit analysis. Yeah. But I think when it's about other groups of people, you got to err on the side of caution and just like do as much as you possibly can. So.
0: Yeah, absolutely. <sighs> Lots of big things. That was a beautiful winding conversation. I think we covered a lot. Is there anything else that we didn't get to that you want to kind of like chat about first before we um, wrap it up?
1: Mm, I just want to say that Like I said earlier, it is really hard to know what you don't know. It's sort of the unknown, Mm -hmm. unknown situation. Um, I think the best way to remedy this is to follow a ton of trans people on whatever platforms you use, whether that's Mm -hmm. Twitter, RIP Twitter, um, (laughs) Instagram podcasts, whatever, because you'll hear us talking about the things that those kind of articles mess up. But also like Gender Reveal, for example, as a podcast, like we can dive into these topics deeper if we want or need to. And so if listeners have a conversation that they want to have where they're like, I really need more information about this, that, and the other thing, and I'm looking for sources, on it, like if people want to reach out to me, I am happy to either like send them a source or like Mm. do an interview about it where I like interview a guest that can talk about that thing, because I do think it's really important to like create materials that can counteract these arguments. And I know I said like going line by line in every article and explaining why that's not true isn't useful. And I stand by that. But if there is a Mm -hmm. specific thing that someone's running into over and over again, like I'm really happy to either find resources or make resources. So um, yeah, don't don't be afraid to reach out and be like, please help me figure out how to combat this misinformation. It's like, it's so high stakes. I have boundaries mm-hmm. around a lot of my work where I'm like, mm-hmm. please do not reach out to me about this. But like, yeah. it's very, very high stakes. I'm happy to do whatever I can do. <laughs>
0: yeah, and I mean, you've already interviewed parents, you've interviewed educators, and mm-hmm. I think you have some more educator interviews coming up if uh, if I'm right about that. But um, you're you're having those conversations and trans people are having those conversations all over the internet wherever we can Um, or or at least we you know have the spoons and can do that Mm -hmm. emotional labor on like a wider scale Um, but yeah just I think that that's like a great takeaway of like just listen to trans people especially when it comes to trans kids because I think like I mean there's even for the trans community I think talking about kids is hard because we're systemically kept from children Um, I was just my wife was just telling me about a trans person she knows who was told they could not meet like their a relative's young like newborn child because they're trans mm-hmm. and like mm-hmm. that like oh my god what a gut punch like when I heard mm-hmm. that yeah it's just it's real bad right now
1: yeah and I have I have interviewed a lot of trans parents on gender reveal and most of the time I'm not interviewing them about being parents but then it comes up. So we actually have genderpodcast.com slash starter packs. We sort podcasts by topic. And I think we separated out a bunch of the interviews that have parent conversations. And then we also have more parent conversations that aren't in that list. Uh, (laughs) And I just think it's really fun to get to hear from trans adults the way that they're parenting. Um, A lot of them are parenting trans kids or kids that they've decided to they them until otherwise noticed. Mm -hmm. Other parents, other trans parents, Of kids are not doing that Mm -hmm. um and i think that is also useful to be like look there's not just one way to do this there's actually a lot of ways to do this and as long as as you're doing this thoughtfully that's what matters i'm not a parent but i know that a lot of parents are like am i doing this right am i doing this right and especially like cis parents around gender and their kids are like am i doing this right and so i just sort of want to say like if you're doing this with a lot of thought and intention
0: Mm -hmm. then
1: you're doing so much more than 99% of people. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. We can all just do our best.
0: Yeah. And I think like what you said is perfect of like, there is no like one right way to do it. There are a lot of wrong ways to do it though. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, that's why I'm doing this podcast and like why I wrote my book and like why we're talking about like queer and trans and like gender affirming ways of parenting and like bringing up children to combat all of this and i think that like just listening to this podcast is doing it and like please share it afterwards go check out gender reveal all of the above i think a lot of people listening to this are probably already doing that which is fantastic please keep Mm -hmm. doing it um and uh contributing to the culture shift that we're trying to make happen on a slow but steady uh scale so yeah all Mm -hmm. right Now's a great time to plug all the things. Where can people find you on the internet?
1: Gosh, all over. Yeah. If you're if you're still on Twitter, which I am at <laughs> Tuck Woodstock, and then the podcast is at G-E-N-D-E-R-E-V-E-A-L. And then on Instagram, it's also at that handle. And I'm on Tuck Woodstock Junior on Instagram because I don't use Instagram. Um, And then I'm at genderpodcast.com, where we also have transcripts of all of the episodes. Uh, You can find Gender Reveal and wherever you're listening to this. I'm also at techwoodstock.com, where I have some of the articles that I've contributed to or written about these topics. And also, actually, um, I'm a co-founder of Sylveon Consulting, which, as I mentioned at the beginning, Mm -hmm. teaches workshops and also does consultations about making trans-inclusive media and then also trans-inclusive companies more broadly. So if you work for a company where you feel like it would be beneficial to have like a two hour workshop or if you're in journalism, three hour workshop about these topics that we talked about today, but with much more concrete examples, instead of me being like that one article was bad, there's like actually a line by line like discussion. Uh, that is also something that I do and love to do. And that's at S-Y-L-V-E-O-N dot C-O.
0: Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for coming on Rainbow Parenting. This was, uh, I think, Hopefully, super, super helpful, and has given folks a tool for like if that parent is coming at the PTA meeting with that <laughs> New York Times article,
1: uh, show them this this podcast episode. Thank you, thank you so much for having me. I had such a good time.
0: Wow! 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 just so much good information. What an awesome conversation with Tuck. I so, so enjoyed that. And now hopefully you all have some tangible resources to help combat these New York Times articles that I'm sure you're encountering in your day-to-day lives. Or if you're not, That's great for you. I would love for you to engage more deeply with what's happening with the New York Times and help debunk it within your community. So, you can share this podcast episode. You can take a look at any of the other resources we've shared the gender reveal episode with a trans journalist from the New York Times that Tuck just did over on the Gender Reveal podcast, the teen Vogue article, the slate outward episode with Jules Gil Peterson. There's lots of people talking about this right now, and we hope that we can. Contribute to that conversation from our own perspective and also give you some resources to share with the folks in your lives who uh, maybe aren't as critical of the New York Times. <laughs> uh, thank you so, so much for listening, everyone. You can find Tuck in all the places. Please go re- listen to Gender Reveal, it's an incredible podcast. As always, you can find me on social media at LinzAmer, L-I-N-D-Z-A-M-E-R. And you can check out Queer Kid Stuff and all of our work at Queer Kid Stuff. One kid, Queer Kid Stuff. Head over to our Patreon, the Queer Kid Stuff Patreon, and support us over there. That makes a huge, huge, huge difference in our work. All right. I think that's it. Until next time. Talk soon. Rainbow Parenting is hosted and created by me, Lynz Eimer. It's produced in partnership with Multitude and is edited by Misha Stanton. The theme music is by Amanda Darchangelis and the logo artwork is by Abe Tenzia.